Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Atlantic Canadians are picking up the pieces after they were hit by Fiona. We have the latest on strike votes in Ontario's education sector. A woman shares her incredible fight against ovarian cancer. Remembering the 72 Summit series with the director of a new documentary about that series, we welcome award-winning Canadian musician Lorena McKinnett to the show. And have you ever heard about fexting? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. I convened the Incident Response Group and our government is standing ready to support provinces with any necessary resources. We've approved Nova Scotia's request for federal assistance and will deploy the Canadian Armed Forces to assist in assessment and cleanup and ready to do more. Thanks for waking up with us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The voice of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing aid for Atlantic Canada after that uh, section of the country was absolutely devastated by former Hurricane Fiona. One person is dead, hundreds of thousands still without power as they are waking up to what is a very different reality for many people in the Maritimes. Anthony Farnell is the chief meteorologist with Global News, has been in Atlantic Canada all weekend long and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Anthony, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing a little better this morning. Uh, although it's not sunny outside here in Sydney, uh, our power just came back on at the hotel we're staying at and and the circulation, the ventilation is going again. And uh, I just got word there's a, a hot breakfast served downstairs. So uh, it's the little things uh, in hurricane aftermath covers that, that you look forward to. And, and that's really the reality for a lot of people who really, they don't have a roof over their head because their house has been destroyed. There's so many of these stories and videos and and uh, messages on social media of devastation. What have you seen over the last uh, 24, 48 hours? Yeah, in Sydney, there there are a lot of, or there were more, but there are a lot of very large 100-plus-year-old trees, and so many of them, as you go street to street, have come crashing down. Some very hard with a thud and on houses or on cars, uh, definitely on power lines. Others almost just tipped over lightly because it's all uprooted trees so it just kind of uh, balances and then eventually tips over and that's the big problem for not just the the electrical crews the, the line crews that are here en masse from Ontario Quebec the rest of the Maritimes they're all here working together coordinated effort but they're needing to call in the the forest service because they don't have big enough chainsaws or or the machinery to remove these massive trees that have come down and crashed into the the power lines. This seems to be like it was the perfect storm in terms of the devastation part of it. How did Fiona get so strong as it made its way up the coast? Yeah, it's this hybrid nature. It wasn't a pure hurricane by the time it moved in here. And, and that's one reason why it was able to maintain its intensity. Typically, uh, in Atlantic Canada, the water surrounding the provinces is quite cool. It cannot generally support hurricane conditions. You get hurricanes here because they're weakening and they're moving fast enough. This one was also moving rather quickly until it slowed down right over Cape Breton and into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. But because it was merging with a trough, a cold front, it had this hybrid nature and and the process was going from tropical to more of a nor'easter, which you would see in the winter. And the end result was a pretty large swath of wind that moved a lot of water. And we did 
did get some some big time erosion and, and waves and and definitely lost a few houses here on Cape Breton. I think the worst of the storm surge, however, was uh, Porto Basque and, and for parts of western Newfoundland. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist at Global News, as we recap the weekend that was in Atlantic Canada as they recover from Hurricane and uh, post-tropical storm Fiona. At its peak, how bad was it in terms of that storm surge, in terms of those winds? What were people experiencing? Well, it was it was pretty bad where we were. We had a peak gust of about 150 kilometers per hour. I'm sure there were some stronger winds in the vicinity. You have to have uh, one of those gusts go right over an anemometer to, to actually measure it. But just from driving around where you get entire forest canopies that have come down and, and that you see typically in, in tornadoes and maybe a, an EF1, EF2 more likely. So yeah, there were some definite stronger gusts. And our hotel, I'm up on the sixth floor. I'm, I'm overlooking the harbor. It's normally just a beautiful scene here down by the boardwalk in Sydney. Uh, it was not the case. Uh, it was actually a bit scary as the whole hotel was shaking and, and we had occasionally some minor branches hitting the window. Uh, I also went out in the storm cautiously. I was protecting myself and looking always behind your back. You don't want anything to come at you. But I was I was watching these large trees and trying to capture the moment they fell Eventually, I just got too tired and went to bed. But in the morning, yep, they were all down outside of the hotel. And, and it's just a, a sight to see how quickly uh, the entire scenery can change in these hurricanes. Don't know if you have any info on this. We only got about 30 seconds to discuss it. There's another name storm. I think it's Ian, which is barreling towards Florida. Does that pose any threat to Atlantic Canada? Luckily, no. There's a large high pressure that's going to move in here. It's raining for the next couple of days, and then it clears out, and it's actually going to be great weather for for the recovery effort. But Ian is a big deal for Western Cuba, possibly a Category 3, moving in there tonight. And then the the worry is around Tampa. It's a very low-lying area, prone to this track, major storm surge flooding. And with Ian, that's going to be a strong storm and and stalling. I I am concerned about the west side of Florida with this one, and that'll be by the the middle of the week. And I'm hoping for the best, hoping it weakens out at sea, but uh, it doesn't look good for, for areas around Tampa, Clearwater. We'll be following that. Anthony, really appreciate your time. Stay safe out there. Thanks a lot for having me on. Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist, Global News, with the latest on Hurricane Fiona. Now a post-tropical storm. Uh, The damage has been done. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, the war of words, at this point that's all it is, continues between the provincial government and uh, some of the education unions who are trying to squeeze in a few more extra dollars and better working conditions for their members. And after calling the Ontario government's initial contract offer insulting, uh, CUPE's 55,000 education workers, these are librarians, uh, administrative staff, custodians, they've begun voting on whether or not they should strike to back their contract demands. And here to guide us along on how this process is going is Laura Walton, the president of CUPE's Ontario School Board's Council of Unions, also a longtime educational assistant here in the province. Laura, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you today, Rick? I'm good. Thanks for joining us today to provide us with an update on what's happening. Uh, What is the update? What is the latest news on these strike votes that are taking place? Yeah, so, well, we met with the government and the Trustees Association 
uh, last week and we said, okay, listen, like we get that you want to talk about wages and sick leave and benefits and you don't want to talk to, talk to us today about it. So let's try and get some of these little pieces going, right? You know, can we, you know, if we, you know, meet you halfway on some of these other pieces, can you, you, can you come our way? And the answer was no. Uh, and then the very next day, you know, we do start our, our strike vote and we have the minister announcing that he will be increasing the amount of money that he's paying in checks, one-time checks to parents for tutoring services. Uh, what's really interesting is one of the proposals that we had would see a DECE in every kindergarten classroom across this province, you know, recognizing that these little ones have lived over half of their life in a pandemic. They need extra support. It would only cost $30 million, and yet this government said, nope, that's too expensive, and then turned around the next day and, you know, is offering 10 times that in checks that we can't guarantee are actually going to support children at all. And frankly, if you need to pay an outside provider to help students catch up, doesn't that mean that you didn't provide the service in the first place? You mentioned the little pieces. What about the bigger pieces? Where are the two sides on some of the, the big items mm-hmm. in these negotiations? Uh, yeah, so they have made it clear through the conciliation officer that, you know, we're not ready to talk about that stuff yet. Um, and so we keep saying, okay, well, this stuff is still going to be here. Uh, you know, these workers need to be able to afford to live. Uh, you know, we've got EA in Hamilton. We have custodians, EAs, ECEs. Um, speech language uh, professionals, tons of people who are working second and third jobs trying to put food on the table. They need a real wage gain. Uh, Voting for a strike mandate began on Friday, continues until October the 2nd. How is that process going? You know, it is going extremely well. Um, and, And a lot of that is, you know, I think reflection of the fact that folks are very upset. Um, they are tired. They, you know, worked on site throughout the pandemic. They were often looked overlooked um, when it came to protocols, and they are done with this government who just keeps ignoring the people who actually really, you know, worked very hard for our kids. Um, and so we are seeing unprecedented numbers from across the province, and we still have, you know, just less than a week to go. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Laura Walton, president of CUPE's Ontario School Board's Council of Unions and a longtime educational assistant in this province as uh, the union's uh, education workers have begun voting on whether or not they should uh, uh, back a strike mandate. Do you get the sense, is there something maybe in the pit of your stomach that suggests that this, this, uh, these strike votes are going to happen and maybe the majority of the membership says, yeah, we're, we'll, we'll back a strike mandate, and if you go on strike, that the province is just going to mandate you back anyways? Is that the card that they're probably going to play? Uh, you know, listen, that's the card that the government always has to play. Um, but, you know, I think we are working with a government that claims that they're working for workers. So I'm not sure how interfering with free collective bargaining is, is actually working for workers. And you can't claim you're working for workers if you won't work with anyone outside of the chosen few that you wish to work with. It's an absolute slap in the face to our tradespeople, for instance, in the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, that you will work for workers as long as they're not education workers. Um, and so I think that is, needs to be a very clear message that goes out. But I also want to be clear, we're also hearing from parents and from, you know, family members who are saying, this is ridiculous. 
you know, why is the government choosing this? Why is the government choosing to disrespect the people? Because they know day after day who is in the schools, who is working hard for their kids, and they know it's not this government. How would you describe the negotiations? Is it just uh, the the government not communicating, not wanting to dig down deep? Uh, What words would you use to describe these negotiations? Well, you know, I think we have some really good working relationships with folks. Um, But what happens at negotiations is the government brings in two additional hired lawyers. And uh, I got to say, those two hired lawyers who aren't involved in the day-to-day, you know, work that is happening can cause a real delay. Uh, you know, and they have a mandate from the government not to spend money. And we're saying, you know, you aren't with us day after day. You aren't the school board who is having an extremely difficult time hiring and recruiting people. Um, you know, maybe you should let the people who are actually doing the work make these decisions. Uh, so I think that's part of the real issue that is happening. Um, but, you know, respectfully, we also know that people have said, if I don't get a real wage bill, I'm going to have to find other work. And that idea of... So many professionals leaving the industry is quite concerning to me because parents should know that they have the best qualified people uh, working in their school. Last one for you. We've got about 30 seconds. Is a strike inevitable? I don't think a strike is inevitable at all. Um, I think what it shows is that people are willing to do what it takes. Workers are willing to do what it takes to get a real wage gain. Um, I think what needs to happen is that the minister needs to start listening. Instead of just, you know, throwing out checks like Oprah Winfrey's Christmas, he needs to actually think about where would that money, investing that money, where would it actually make an impact? And that is investing in the workers that provide the services. That's investing in the students within the school and keeping publicly funded education publicly delivered. Laura, appreciate the update. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Take care. That's Laura Walton, president of CUPE's Ontario School Board's Council of Unions and a longtime educational assistant in the province. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is an amazing story of survival. This woman who's going to join us in a matter of seconds uh, arrived uh, from the Philippines back in uh, 2006. And just a few months later was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And what's worse is she was told that she had less than five years left. Fifteen years later, she is sharing her remarkable story. Joanna Navarro-Lalich is our ovarian cancer survivor that we're shining a spotlight on today. Joanna, good morning. How are you today? I'm good, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. You were first diagnosed 15 years ago. Yes, that's in 2006 of September, uh, of 2007 of May or June, sometime that year. You got to Canada from the Philippines, you get this diagnosis. Um, I'd imagine your world is crumbling at this point. What are you, what are you thinking when you're getting this diagnosis? Absolutely, Rick. Um, we arrived in the country, no jobs, no, um, no immediate family, so we're relatively new, and then this uh, news hit us that I was diagnosed with stage 3C ovarian cancer. So everything was uncertain from then on. And you were given less than five years to live. That's correct, five years. And, I mean, you have kids at this point. Your whole life is basically ahead of you. How, how did you battle this thing? Um, it was a blur during that time because my youngest was 10 months old, about a year old. 
and um, my eldest son was nine, and my first daughter was um, six. So, and we just arrived the country, and my jo- my husband didn't have a job back then. So, I don't know. Um, we just went through the we just went through the flow. We I, I had my checkup, and then I was referred to um, to have a surgery, which I did. And then eventually um, admitted to Chervinsky Cancer Center for my chemo program, which I participated on. Then um, I had my surgery, chemo. I was cured. And then a year later, it came back. So hopeful again, um, bright future and all. So, um, But after 10 months, it came back. So um, three times. So that happened three times. And that's when Gervinci Cancer uh, Cancer um, Research Clinical Trial approached us to invite me to participate in this um, program, in this trial. And uh, you undertook this groundbreaking cancer research trial. You were one of the participants, and this basically, uh, I guess, did the trick. Yes, it did. So 15 years later, I'm here talking to you. (laughs) And how are you feeling now? Oh, fantastic. Such a miracle. I was able to see milestone after my milestone of my children. Um, my nine, nine-year-old uh, son is now graduated from university and married to the love of his life. And my first daughter is in university. And my youngest daughter, who, is, uh, who was um, 10 months old, is now in grade 12. And I'm still married to the same, the same husband <laughs> 20 years later. So no complaints, Rick. <laughs> Joanna Navarro-Lalich is our guest, ovarian cancer survivor who has uh, an unbelievable story to tell. And we're glad that you're here listening with us to Joanna's story. You, you, you mentioned, you know, basically the core of your family. How important was it to have them close by and them so supportive along this journey? Oh, very, very important. Um, it's, not just, it's not just the drug, but the support of uh, my family. Um, they were there 100%, especially my husband. Uh, no expectation. We just lived one day at a time. And um, it is very important because I wouldn't have done it without them. You also have an extended family, I'm sure, at the Jurovinsky Hospital and Cancer Center because without them, you wouldn't be here. Absolutely. Shout out to um, Dr. Waldo Jimenez and my nurse, uh, Shirley Ann. So they were, in a, they were not just my medical team, but... They were really family. They made sure that I survived, and, and I did. There's going to be a lot of people f- between now and, let's just say, the end of the year who are going to get a mm-hmm. cancer diagnosis. What's your advice to them? Don't quit. Don't quit. There's research there. People are, are really trying their best to, to find a cure, and I am a recipient of that research, and I can attest, I can be a testimony that it worked. Um, five years now I'm on my 15th year three-time cancer survivor so just hang in there there's going to be a cure and um, one of these days uh, this is not going to be an issue anymore it is a phenomenal story Uh, Joanna thanks for sharing it with us and uh, continued uh, great health uh, from here on in thank you so much Rick for this opportunity Joanna Navarro-Lalich, an ovarian cancer survivor and uh, one of the many patients who have gone to places like the Jurovinsky Cancer Center and have walked out time and time again feeling a heck of a lot better. Uh, life-saving cancer care is uh, in our city 
and uh, those involved with the um, uh, with the uh, provision of care, the providing of care, uh, doing phenomenal work in this community. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. 50 years ago, the puck dropped on the 1972 Summit Series, an eight-game series between Canada and the former Soviet Union that really changed international hockey forever. Some would say for the better. And there's a new documentary out. It's called Icebreaker, the 72 Summit Series, that is going to be shown at Hamilton's Playhouse Cinema on October the 4th. It's a 7 p.m. Well, puck drop, if you will. And uh, director Robbie Hart is going to be there. And director Robbie Hart is with us now to talk about Icebreaker, the 72 Summit Series. Robbie, good morning. Thanks for joining us on Good Morning Hamilton. Excellent. Good morning. Nice to have. Uh, nice to be on your show, Rick. Tell us, a, tell us about Icebreaker. This sounds like a really good documentary. Well, the, the idea really was to tell the story um, uh, from a different perspective, not so much from the game footage and from the players, but from the untold stories, uh, from people that were directly involved uh, at all levels, politically, uh, journalists, broadcasters, former NHL players, and the Russians as well. So the idea really was to, was to build up all eight games, but to also bring in the stories, uh, untold stories that have never really been properly uh, documented in film and those stories and that's what icebreaker is all about yeah those stories are being told by a number of uh, amazing intervi- individuals who are connected to the game from wayne gretzky to boris mikhailov to vladislav treciak and, and the list goes on and on yeah exactly i mean you have brian conacher as well he was foster hewitt's uh, uh play-by-play uh, color commentator he was there uh, as well and it, it plays a big role he actually says exactly what you said because after that game one loss in Montreal, um, uh, September the second, seven to three to the Soviet Union, hockey in the world changed forever. And that's a that's a big line. It comes in at about the twentieth minute of the ninety five minute film, and uh, it really did change hockey forever, and changed hockey for the better, as you mentioned. As you're compiling and, and conducting these interviews and getting this archival footage and piecing this together. Uh, you obviously being you know a hockey fan and a documentary filmmaker, what's going through your mind and how am I going to build this story that's been told over and over again and, and find something new? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I appreciate the question. It's a good one. I mean, I, I, I felt a lot of responsibility in taking on this project uh, simply because it's of such national significance. I mean, the Summit Series is, you know, one of the defining moments in Canadian history. And so I really wanted to be sure that um, uh, I was building a, a great team around me. And one of those players uh, or partners is Peter Raymond from uh, White Pine Pictures, uh, who is a co-producer on the show. And he introduced me to Roy McGregor uh, as a consultant. Uh, Roy is a prolific hockey writer and journalist, well-known in Canada. And Roy introduced me to Gary Smith. And Gary was not in, um, in Moscow at the time, who had been mandated by Trudeau, father, Pierre, to build detente with the Soviets. So hockey becomes the hockey bridge, and uh, the way to break the ice, if you will, and uh, create right at the height of the Cold War. And so Gary and I actually go to Moscow together. He's a big part of the film, and he's one of the many characters, uh, uh, you mentioned earlier, that bring fresh perspectives to the whole story. Um, when... Uh, at the 
We're losing uh, Robbie Hart, the director of uh, Documentary Icebreaker. We're going to get Alicia just to uh, maybe give him a quick call back to see if we can get him on for our last uh, couple minutes of this segment. You can watch uh, Icebreaker, the 72 Summit Series at Hamilton's Playhouse Cinema. It will uh, hit the screen there October the 4th at 7 p.m. And uh, Hart will actually be there as well. Uh, Today, in fact, is the 50th anniversary of Game 7. And the 50th anniversary of Game 8, which was the final game of this uh, eight-game series between Canada and the Soviet Union, is September 28th. So Wednesday will be the 50th anniversary of Paul Henderson's iconic goal. We have Robbie Hart back on the phone. I'm sure we've uh, cleared up uh, the gremlins and the cobwebs. Yeah, I'm... I'm <laughs> you're, you're still with us, and I appreciate that. Do you have a favorite story of all the ones that you heard over the over the course of creating this documentary? Well, there's many. Uh, honestly, there's many. I, I would say one of the parts of the film that I really appreciate the most was being at Luzhniki Ice Palace, the rink in Moscow where four of the games were played. Uh, it, it's hard to believe, but, you know, one game in Montreal, one in Toronto, one in Winnipeg, one in Vancouver, and four at the same arena in Moscow. So it, it's, it's a very sacred place when it comes to the 72 Summit Series. And, of course, that's where Paul Henderson scored game-winning goals in 6th, 7th, and Game 8. So I was on that ice surface with uh, Vladislav Tretiak, uh, and he was just so generous uh, in his time and in the, his energy. And we replay, as you see in the film, people will see in the film, uh, the last minute of Game 8 and, and how it came down. And he, he, de- he deconstructs the whole game. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those defining golden moments in documentary filmmaking that you can't really script. But it happened, and it's and it's a great moment in the film. Wow, I really can't wa- wait to watch Icebreaker. The 72 Summit Series is coming to Hamilton's Playhouse Cinema October 4th at 7 p.m., and director Robbie Hart is going to be there. Robbie, thanks for the time. Good luck with this thing. It sounds like it's going to be a winner. It, it, thank you so much. I'm feeling good about it. We're in Toronto, actually, on the 28th for a big screening uh, this week, uh, which is exactly the 50th anniversary of uh, Game 8 and Henderson's winning goal. Awesome So stuff. I look forward to being in Hamilton. Excellent. Thanks, Robbie. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Award-winning Canadian musician and member of the Order of Canada, Lorena McKinnett, is set to perform at Hamilton's first Ontario Concert Hall this coming Saturday night. Should be an amazing show. And Lorena McKinnett joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Lorena, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well, thank you. We can't, How are you? I'm great. We can't wait for your show on Saturday. Tell us about what fans can expect to hear. Well, this is titled The Visit Revisited Tour. Um, the Visit was my uh, a recording, my fourth recording that I made in 1991. That really was that really was the recording that allowed me to expand my notoriety, shall we say, not only across Canada but uh, but around the world. So, uh, for many people, that was the first recording they learned of mine, even though I'd made three previous ones. So, we'll be performing the whole recording in in sequence. Um, yeah, the whole thing. You also have a new album out called Under a Winter's Moon, and that's coming out in November, I understand? Yes, yes, and we'll be performing in Hamilton at that time as well. It's a very interesting project where I've I've woven sort of uh, Christmas and winter themes, Celtic and Indigenous. Uh, There's uh, a friend of mine, a very accomplished actor, Cedric Smith, who recites or narrates the Child's Christmas in Wales uh, in six chapters, and we do music in between. But the first set is is mostly uh, uh, carols and, and some Indigenous. Uh, winter reflections. 
In addition to vocals on this album, you also produce the album. You play uh, the keyboards, the accordion, the harp. Uh, <laughs> how do you do all this stuff, and, and do you have a favorite instrument? Well, uh, I, I, I will confess I don't play all these things extremely well. They're <laughs> often, <laughs> often used uh, in a supporting kind of way. Um, do I have a favorite instrument? I suppose the harp from the standpoint that it is a really a very, it's forgiving, first of all, <laughs> but it is very soothing. And I think, uh, especially in, in these times, it's nice to have sounds that are, are, are kind of soothing rather than overly challenging. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is two-time Juno Award-winning Canadian musician Lorena McKinnon, who's going to be playing Hamilton's first Ontario Concert Hall this Saturday night. Showtime is at 8 p.m. There's still some tickets available, so hop on Ticketmaster or your favorite uh, ticket app and grab yours. You're also planning a two-week companion tour in Hamilton in early December that's going to bring you to the New Vision United Church on December 9th. Tell us about that. Well, this is a, a, a comp, an accompaniment tour to the recording called Under Winter's Moon that I was just uh, describing that has the Christmas and winter and Celtic and Indigenous. Uh, I'll be working with, um, uh, as I mentioned, Cedric Smith uh, narrating A Child's Christmas in Wales, uh, Tom Jackson, one of our country's most uh, wonderful Indigenous actors, is recorded uh, a version of the Sky Woman story, which is like a different birth story. We have another, we've got three members of a local Celtic group called the Bookends who will be uh, playing a lot of the carols with us. Graham Hargrove, a percussionist working at the Stratford Theatre. And then the cellist that I work with uh, in my other repertoire, who's come from Cornwall, England, uh, Caroline Lavelle. So it's a real eclectic presentation. And we wanted to present it more in uh, smaller venues, particularly churches that may already have an association with Christmas and winter and music. It's going to be an exciting time, that is for sure, in November and December as Lorena McKinnett comes to town. Lorena, thank you for the time today. Best of luck with the new album as well. Yeah, thank you so much for your support. Have a great day. You too. (laughs) Lorena McKinnett is a two-time Juno Award-winning musician here in Canada, a member of the Order of Canada, and will be performing at Hamilton's first Ontario Concert Hall this Saturday night, and will be back in Hamilton at the uh, even more intimate New Vision United Church for more musical exploits. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Are you fexting with your significant other? And if you are, is it actually healthy for your relationship? Marianne Dawood is a couples therapist and a registered psychotherapist with Couples Counseling Center and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Marianne, good morning. How are you? Hi, Rick. Good morning. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. So what exactly is fexting? So good question. I think it was recently uh, coined uh, by Jill Biden recently, where she disclosed that her and the president will often uh, fight over text so that um, the security around them uh, doesn't hear what they're saying. So (laughs) um, basically, yeah, it's just when you fight over text or you have an argument over text. My guess is, you know, as technology continues to dominate our day-to-day lives, that more and more people are actually doing this? Yes, totally. So I'm seeing it a lot in couples therapy where couples will pull out their phones to share with me proof of what was said between them during a fight. So there's definitely, it's definitely happening. So is this healthy for a relationship or at least can it be healthy? 
Um, I would, I'm going to say no. So there is a lot we lose in the tech, like through text messaging. Um, and I find that it's most common among couples who are struggling with a breakdown in their relationship already. So they may try to talk about something important in their relationship and they just get stuck in this cycle that goes round and round and it leaves them both feeling frustrated and unheard and the issue unresolved. Um, but I totally get the appeal, right? In a text message, you can formulate your thoughts without being interrupted by your partner. You don't have to deal with immediate feedback from your partner. So in the absence of sensory cues and body language, you don't get the immediate feedback of knowing how it's being received by your partner. So you may be less inhibited. Um, but obviously, we miss a ton of valuable information. So for example, I like to use this example over a text message, the quiver in your voice, it's not always heard. So your partner may interpret your message as being primarily angry when what you're actually feeling is hurt. And that's a huge distinction because we respond very differently to anger than to hurt. It, so it, anger, it's like a secondary emotion. It's a good emotion. It serves a purpose. It lets us know when we've been wronged. It makes us feel more powerful. But depending on our partner and their lived experience and their trauma, that could give our partner a red signal saying, stay away. But if we feel hurt, that's a softer, it's a more vulnerable emotion. And it allows our partner to better connect with that. And that gives off green signals, come close. So that's just an example of where you could, you know, lose extremely valuable information. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Marianne Dawood, a couples therapist and registered psychotherapist at Couples Counseling Center. We're talking about fexting and whether it's healthy or not for a relationship. Could could this be a good way for parents to talk to teenagers? Because we know that teenagers don't really like to talk to their parents, especially about really sensitive information. Is it at least a gateway to that kind of communication? I mean, that's a good point. Certainly proponents of fexting say that it may be more accessible to teens, easily to reach them. They're on their phones anyway, so maybe you can't connect with them. So it certainly, you know, if the option is no communication, then certainly that is a good gateway. But I find that if you're running into communication issues round and round again, then that might be a good time to look for support, ask for a therapist uh, to support you in that it's uh yeah definitely that is the place to turn to if the, you have a communication breakdown if things are not going uh the way you want them to go communication is key but obviously a lot of help is out there including marianne uh really appreciate your time today thanks for the uh, the tips and advice and the analysis on this topic thank you so much rick that's marianne dawood a couples therapist and a registered psychotherapist with couples counseling center giving us some information on texting, fighting over text it's uh, at the end of the day, as you heard from her, not really that healthy. It's almost like writing an email. You don't really get the tone of the message. You're kind of injecting your own tone and thoughts and feelings of what this um, argument or issue is all about. And that's not uh, really the way to go. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.